You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. If you're looking for a way to see theater for cheap and also meet new people, check out the Broadway Meetup. Literally just Google Broadway Meetup. You'll see there are all these opportunities for you to see shows like Jersey Boys for 59 bucks before it closes. Something Rotten for only 39 bucks. Join the Broadway Meetup. It's a heck of a lot of fun. Google Broadway Meetup today. I wanna be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I wanna be a producer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. We have a terrific guest for everybody today. Honestly, I was shocked when he said he could squeeze this recording into his schedule because he's one of the most prolific writers we have. Please welcome to the podcast two-time Tony Award winner Joe DiPietro. Welcome, Joe. Ken, it is always good to see you. Joe won his Tony for the book and lyrics to the Tony Award winning Best Musical Memphis. Also the writer of the Broadway productions of All Shook Up, Nice Work If You Can Get It, Living on Love. His off-Broadway credits include The Toxic Avenger, Clever Little Lies, Over the River and Through the Woods, and a whole host of others. Oh, and that little show that is played just about every theater on the planet. The monster that is I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. So, Joe, tell us, how'd you get started in the theater? Ah, well, you know, I I always loved theater. I grew up in New Jersey, and my folks would take us to see Broadway shows. And the first show I ever saw was the original production of 1776. And I still remember where I was sitting in the mezzanine, lights came up, you saw the Continental Congress, and I was like, put a fork in me. I was done. I had no idea how to get into theater. I said, I just want to somehow be involved in this. And I was a, a, a young kid. So, you know, I, I think when you're a writer, 
no one gives you permission to write. You just sort of write. And I always enjoyed writing dialogue. And I was interested in plays from an early age. And then after 1776, my folks would take us to see like a, a big play a year. This was in the 70s, like Annie or Shenandoah or, you know, one of the big sort of good for kids plays. So I just sort of, theater was never alien to me. It was never this other thing. It was always like people go to the movies. I would see two or three shows a year. So when I started writing, I just thought, oh, maybe I can start writing plays. And when I was in high school, of all things, took creative writing class and we had to write a one act play. And then we had to submit a piece of writing we did to something called the Scholastic Writing Awards, which is Scholastic Magazine, which I think are still around. So I submitted this one-act play in, the, like, the dramatic category. And this is, you know, high school kids from all over the country. And it turned out winning. And so I put in the very back of my head, you know, maybe I can do this sometime. Maybe I can do this. So, and uh, which was, like, a great thing for a kid, you know. just And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what it meant. I was an English major in college. I got out. I got a job in advertising. And I worked in advertising for about 12 years, and I was writing very casually at night. No real formal education in theater or anything. I just liked it. And whatever makes a writer, like, sit up, you know, in the middle of the night when they should be going to sleep because they have to go to work the next day, I was doing that and, and, and pounding away and not quite knowing what I was uh, doing. And then, long story short, this was over many years, I started writing, uh, I got involved in this writer's group. And we were writing political sketches. This was for the 1988 presidential election to caucus against Bush. And uh, at the time, we played at the West Bank Theater, which Louis Black, who's a comedian now, the famous comedian, used to run the West Bank downstairs, that great theater. And a lot of great people used to work there. And they used to give you slots. And he had seen my political sketches and said, oh, these are funny. Let me know if you ever want to do something here. And I just wound up writing this little sketch show about me and my friends dating and got four friends together. We got a really good young director to do it. And it became these sketches about relationships. And the first day that it was done in front of an audience, which is probably my friends, all, you know, who, when you work in those places, you basically have to invite your friends. They have to buy drinks and then they invite you back. That's how you start, at least by how I started. And the response to these sketches about dating and just real life were bigger than any like political thing I'd ever written. And I suddenly like this little light bulb, this cartoon light bulb went off in my head saying, Oh, people want to hear about their lives. It was like the best masterclass in running I ever had. And, uh, you know, and since then that's sort of probably been if any, I think I write a lot of different things, but the theme of my work, I think is pretty much, you know, the human comedy in a very sort of, um, uh, hopefully universal and relatable way. But those sketches, which sort of play here and there were popular in this little, you know, underground basement theater thing, which you can make. Because, you know, I was probably making, uh, I was putting money I was making that I was earning in the day in advertising and putting it towards trying to, like, mail out postcards and just, you know, add, you know, props for the show and, and all this stuff. So, and then long story short, a producer came to see it and said, this is a musical review, put music in it. And at the time, the only musical review I'd seen was Amos Behaving. And I'm thinking, like, this is nothing like a misbehaving, which I loved. But I'm like, this is like these, you know, kids about trying to, you know, get laid, essentially, these little sketches. So I introduced, someone introduced me to a um, composer named Jimmy Roberts, who was a talented guy and never quite had done, had finished anything, but I really liked his music. And he said, oh, I really like these sketches. They're really good. They don't need music. They're so good. And I'm like, you're my guy. You're my guy. Because you're questioning me already, and I know I don't know what I'm doing. And then so I worked for two years with Jimmy, and and I didn't had no idea how to write musicals. 
And I know Dave had to write lyrics, and Jimmy said, oh, read Sondheim, read, you know, study Coldplay. Like, he gave me sort of the, the classics to really look at. And we came up with I Love You, Perfect Now Change, became that show. And it really, this is when Off-Broadway was in a heyday. You could actually make a living Off-Broadway, and a show could run Off-Broadway. But that show, which was my first thing I ever wrote for theater, was came at a time when the British musicals, when comedy had disappeared from musicals. It was all the heavy British, you know, chandeliers falling and phantom and all that stuff. And we suddenly had this little comedy that made people laugh and people feel good. And it, you know, and it sort of built very slowly, but it sort of just took off. And then that was my very long story of how I got started. So that first play that you wrote yeah. when you were in high school, or yeah. whatever, do you remember what it was called? What the name yeah, was? Yeah, it was called The Dream Stealer. You still have it? I think I do. You know, I, I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at purging the past out of my life. I don't have a very clean apartment, but I think I do have it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you went from the dream stealer yeah. to I love you're perfect. That the I love you're perfect yeah. was your first stage production yes. since high school. Yeah, and spending all that time in advertising yeah. in between. Mm-hmm. T- entirely self taught writer then. Yeah, I never took a formal. You know, I, I mean, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I studied English, so yeah. And do you think your career as an advertiser and marketer, this is, of course, on the heels of Rick Ellis we had on the right. podcast a few weeks ago, <laughs> who talked about what he learned from that. Was there, did it help you in a sense? Yeah, I think the, a couple things. A big thing was writing on deadline. I mean, I think one of my skills, if I have any skills, is that I'm a really good rewriter under pressure and previews and things. And part of that is because in advertising, you come in... <laughs> Here's your assignment. This person wants you to sell this product and you have to write 10 different versions for them. And they're probably going to pick the version that you like the least, the safest version. You know, but you have to write that. So like writing on deadline without it driving you crazy, big, big help in advertising. And also the succinctness of advertising copy. Sometimes you would have 10 seconds to, to make your point. And especially, especially musicals where, you know, plays can sort of, you can just sort of bask in language and, and atmosphere for a while. For musicals, both lyrics and even scenes, you need to like get to the point and move on. So in, in that sense, advertising was a great you know lesson for it. And when you were doing these sketches at the West Bank, mm-hmm. you were acting like your own producer, it sounds like, mailing I was. postcards. Yeah, which was, you know, when I was, I was, I had no idea what I was doing. I was young and stupid. So I thought, oh, I could do this, which looking back was, seems ridiculous. But I literally, literally, and this is, you know, before, this is the nineties, before the internet. So you, in order to get people there, you would actually, I'd actually spend money hiring a designer and making postcards, which were expensive and then getting mailing lists, which was hard to do and mailing them out. And then, you know, and you know, these are like 10 o'clock at night shows in this little basement theater and trying to get people to come. Yeah. So it really was, um, yeah, it was and a challenge. It's easy to think that I love your perfect now change like instantly became yeah. this blockbuster yeah. hit. But was that exactly what happened? Yeah. Every every success looks inevitable when you look back upon when when it's a success you look back upon it. It I love your perfect now change at any show almost <laughs> what I keep thinking, oh if this if we went this way instead of this way, like it would have just sort of disappeared. Like the the one thing I think I've always had is tenacity about keeping I'm a big believer in momentum of the show. And I think a writer being the owner of the show and the initial creator of the show needs to be the one ultimately to keep it going. Push, push, push. And be smart about it, but really push it ahead and also know when to not push it ahead when it's sort of done. So I Love You're Perfect Now Change sort of came about because our director, Joel Bischoff, he was the assistant director to Jamie Hammerstein, who was Oscar Hammerstein's youngest son. And at that time, 
uh, was was he was a great director. Uh, he was running Rogers and the Hammerstein organization. And he even was produced. He wanted to get into producing because he was actually going a little deaf. So as a director, you, it's hard to be not here because you know ten thousand you get ten thousand questions a minute as a director from every direction. So he had come to see this little show that Joel was directing and said. You know, my mother would have really loved this. I'd love to produce it. And this was, you know, Jamie Hammer, who was like Hammerstein, that name. And I was like a kid working in advertising. I was like, oh, my God. And he was like, and I think we got along. He sort of wanted to, he loved the fact that I love to rewrite and that, you know, we we're doing these sketches. And sketches is, is a great way to learn how to write comedy or how to write musicals. Because, you know, you write 10 sketches and if two don't work, you just take them out of the show and write new ones. You don't have, you don't have to go back and, you know, see how it affects the rest of the show. You just sort of take it out. So that, in that sense, he was great. So Jamie was the one who really said, I want to take this to New York. And all of his friends thought, well, you're crazy. This stupid little show, you know, with this like long title that no one understands, like, like all this stuff. And there was a million reasons. No, and Jamie's like, I like it, you know, and he had been around for a long time. He had done everything. And he just like, if I like a show, I want to support it and bring it in. And to him, it was a fun thing. And he liked, you know, I think he liked working with us, which was also a big thing. So, you know, after the show, we would go out to a diner, like you often do after shows, and, and like, you know, just rip it apart and put it back together the next day. So I think it was a fun thing. And I think Jamie's um, just expertise, you know, really, I mean, I learned so much from him. Like, the way I always say, the best thing Jamie ever taught me of many things was, well, two things. One is write your opening number last. Because you don't know what the audience wants until you do the whole show. You don't know what the audience needs to get into your show. And so even if you write an opening number, you know, opening numbers inevitably change. And I think that's the reason. So oftentimes when I'm working on a show now, I'm like, you know, we'll, we'll get to the opening. We'll get to the opening. And his other thing was, which I love, was when you going into have a song cue, cut the two lines of dialogue into it and see how that works. And it almost always makes the, 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 the song cue better. Because you always think you have to write right into this, right into the first lyric. And oftentimes, if you give the actors a breath there, it's going to be a much more surprising, yet still sensible song cue. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And we uh, we premiered and ran for 12 years at the Outside Theater, which was and is probably the best theater off-Broadway. And we had Jamie, you know, Jamie uses connections to get us there. And they looked at the show and they've been, they were great at the West Side. So supportive of it. But they looked at the show and they thought to ourselves, hmm, this will probably run for maybe a couple months or if it does really well, run to the end of the year. So we'll give you the August time slot. And their thought was, if it, if it runs in August, it'll open September, it'll close quick and then we can still get something in there by the end because they had a backup ready to go of a show. So I didn't know that was them being a business people and they were very nice to us and stuff. But then, so we did that. And then, you know, it ran, it opened and it got like middle reviews. New York Times, I don't think was good, but I got some, you know, nice enough notices and people just liked it. And Jamie said, I'm going to keep this thing going because I know that this thing's going to be, I like it and I'm going to fight for it. And it sort of like started in the like mid range level, just making, probably losing a bit, making a bit each week up and down. And for, and, but it had a year run. And then suddenly in the second year, like the numbers just took off, whatever that was. And it just, you know, ran and ran. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Do you know how many productions there have been around the world oh, now? It still and plays. Yeah. It was just open in South Africa of all places. It's how many productions? I mean, it's still, you know, uh, more than hundreds. I mean, thousands, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's 20 year anniversary of it. I think in the 25th anniversary, we might update it and bring it back or something. So, yeah, that's in the back of my mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> you heard uh-huh. it here first. Yeah, you heard it here first. 
what attracts you to ideas? Like, how do you sit there and like, oh, this, I want to do this show. I want to right. do this play or this musical. Yeah. But when you do a show, you know, it's, it stays in your life for many years, especially if it becomes a success. I remember Jamie uh, Hammerstein telling me once, <laughs> he talked to, he was good friends with Michael Bennett, and he, did, he ran into Michael Bennett, and, he, and he, after a course line was running and running, and he said, you know, the problem with a hit is you have to keep working on it, because you have to maintain it, you have to, you know, so, good problem to have, but... You know, it stays in your, your life for a long time. And as a writer, you know, but it takes, what, minimum two, three years to get a show probably up and running, you know, especially if you're coming into New York. So, you know, you become a different person by the time the show keeps running and playing all over the place. And, you know, your sensibility is different. You've grown, hopefully, as an adult. So I, I just think I have to get obsessed with an idea. I have to, like, really believe in it and really want to say it no matter what happens to the show. And it has to really jazz me because I have to be able to get up and work on it with great passion every day. Because you were trained in advertising and marketing, and do you think about a show's potential commercial appeal before you start writing it? You've written some shows that have been uh-huh. huge successes in the commercial market. Does that enter your mind like, oh, this this will be good because this could play a thousands of productions right. across the country, including South Africa. I, I really don't, because, like, even I Love Your Perfect Now Change, which, looking back on it, seems like the perfect commercial robot. <laughs> like, in a sense, it's for people. It's talking about straight people. It's about relationships. It's funny. It's touching. It's, you know, it's tuneful. It's got all these things going for it. Like, we wrote it because we loved it. I thought it was funny. It was making my friends laugh. I liked the songs. We were having a good time doing it. The audiences were responding. Never would have imagined... At the time, I thought if this runs for six months, it'll be I'll be considered a hit off Broadway, and it'll make my next show easier to get on. So no, and I also think if you had lined, I always say this: if you have lined up all everything I've ever written and said and had me pick which ones are going to be the ones that really are commercially successful, I would pick the wrong ones. Really? Yeah, I would almost always pick like if you had told me Memphis, which is a rock and roll musical about you know racial trauma in the 1950s you know, would have, you know, run for three years on, on Broadway, played over the place, and then All Shook Up, which was an Elvis jukebox musical, would have run for five months and sort of, like, limped along. It's had a nice afterlife, but if you have told me, like, which, like, I would have put all my money in All Shook Up. <laughs> and what yeah. do you think, so let's talk about Memphis a little bit, yeah. because we had the producers of, of Memphis on uh, oh. the podcast, and what I loved about their tenacity, uh-huh. actually, and, and yeah. yours as well, that show had a long process to get yeah. here to New York. How was, you had three, there were three out of towns or? We had something? four out of town. Four out. Yeah. And, you know, out of town, I think, sort of means your commercial producers from New York are enlisted. But what happened with, with Memphis was, we our first production was, uh, we had a dual production at North Shore Music Theater up in, uh, right outside of Boston. And at Theater Works, uh, right outside of Palo Alto. So that was before Randy Adams and Sue Frost, who were our, our eventual commercial producers, came on board. Sue, actually, they were both. Randy was at Theater Works as the artistic director, and Sue Frost was at Goodspeed as, uh, also did their new play, new musical development. So they both had years and years of experience developing new shows. So they respected writers, they knew how to speak to writers, which as a producer, you know, is its own skill. Because there are a lot of people who, writers, we're crazy and we have our own needs. And, you know, when you're rewriting a musical, it's different when you're rewriting a movie where you just fire the writer and hire someone else. So it happens sometimes in musicals, but not as, not nearly as often, fortunately. So, but, so they knew how to develop it. And, you know, each time, I'm also a believer in each time you have 
a production or even a reading, you better make that show better. You better, like, I always do a rewrite the day after a reading because I'm like, it's fresh in my mind. I know I've learned stuff. I want to learn because I want to make the show better. And so the first two times we had the, the Memphis productions, we played North Shore and Theater Works, and the show got better from North Shore to Theater Works. It was a big hit in both places. We had some people who were interested in it. We also had a producer, the original producer of it, who's a great guy, who owned the rights to it and was older at the time and sort of wanted to bring it in himself and tried that for a couple of years and couldn't do it. And then once his rights expired, Randy and Sue, who had at that point called me and said, you know, we're leaving our regional theaters. We're going to form a New York production company. And we'd love Memphis to be our first Broadway show. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't like, the door wasn't exactly knocking with a thousand people, you know, for, you know, of course there's some interest, but so I said, and I knew them both. And uh, I said, sure, like, like, let's do that. And I knew they were big believers in development and I knew, you know, but they were unproven. And the, I think they did a couple of uh, off-Broadway shows to sort of also get some New York experience, which was very smart. Like they're really smart. And here's actually an interesting story about Memphis. We, so we had booked La Jolla Playhouse because Chris Ashley was our director and he literally just got the gig in La Jolla as the artistic director. So he said, we have to start in La Jolla. And I'm like, great. You know, that's good with me. Yeah. Shucks. Yeah. Oh, I know. It. Right. Oh, La Jolla. Uh, so, uh, so, we, so we had that lined up and, and then fortuitously, you know, we we're going to come right in was the idea. You know, if all went well there. Of course, it's always, you know, people say they're going to come right in. If all goes well and all did go very well there, but, what happened was, and this is absolutely true, is they were looking for another stop, couldn't find one. You know, we thought, like, let's do twice because this is a new director, new producers. We're learning about the show. It's a complicated subject. And a Seattle Fifth Avenue called, and, and, and one of the, uh, Kenny Alhadeff, who uh, was the, um, I think, chairman of the board then, was also one of the Memphis producers. And he said, you know, Color Purple was, the tour of Color Purple was to come, supposed to come to Seattle Fifth Avenue, but their set was, like, four feet too big for us and they did don't want to cut it down so they're going to someone else and we're looking for a, sh a show that has some racial diversity in it that we could can we can memphis come here <laughs> that's literally how memphis got there was because the color purple set thank you designer of the color purple was four feet too big for the seattle stage so we got a second and we actually wound up fixing a lot of things about memphis from one stop to another so because uh, we basically would have opened our Broadway with our the, our last La Jolla version, but we actually learned so much. We got to go to Seattle and me and David Bryan and Chris Ashley were like, let's play. Let's keep trying this and this. And that's how we sort of came into New York with a show that was, that we still worked on, but that was pretty much ready to go. By the first preview, we know we had something that we were at least proud of. And did Memphis take off right away as well, or was it a slow build? What was the critical reception? I forget. Yeah, Memphis, it was pretty, the critics were actually pretty, really good. The Times was not our best friend, which, you know, and it's interesting. This was, what, 2009, 2010? You know, that like a review from the Times that's not over the top, like 10 years before that would have killed you probably for an unknown show with no stars, no brand, you know, just the show. What also happened to that show, which was very helpful, is the Schuberts, who own most of the theaters on Broadway. Literally, they sit above it. <laughs> yes, I mean, literally. Their offices are right above there looking we, down on you. I think we had thought, like, oh, we would love to be in the Broadhurst, which is a great Schubert theater. It's like 1,200 seats. And the Schuberts came to see us in our last week in Seattle. And the show was a smash hit there. 
and there was like a we came the last week and there was a cancellation line like down the block for tickets and they saw the Schubert's saw that and they saw the show and they said God bless them Schubert's they said you know what we actually want the show in our flagship theater so they, that's how we got the Schubert theaters because they saw this sold out performance in Seattle because the color purple set was four feet too big right can't plan this stuff right so that's how we got the best theater on Broadway arguably totally the best signage <laughs> so so we came in and, you know, we had no advance sale because no one knew who we were. Great producers working really, you know, our producers really believed in it. And we also came upon, you know, we were coming into town right at the dawn of the Obama presidency. So race relations were just part, were as, as hot in, in our cult, national consciousness as, as they've been for a long time. And people would say, would literally say to us interviewers, so did you, did you write this knowing that this would come out? Like, sorry, this is so eight years ago. What are you kidding? We didn't know who Obama was. So it was just like we hit whatever, however you hit the zeitgeist, which is also, as we know, important in everything, shows, movies, like we were just sort of in that. And the interesting thing about Memphis, if you look at our grosses, and we came in like late September, which is a, you know, slower time. If you look at the grosses for the first four weeks, we built $100,000 a week in previews. It started, I think, like around 300 and then next week's four, and then it sort of leveled off. But, you know, I remember sitting in an advertising meeting early on, and our marketer said, this is, you want to see word of mouth? Look at this graph. So it was always a word of mouth hit. And then it sort of like did okay. Like it sort of, you know, had a couple bad weeks in the winter, but it was doing, it was head above water. It wasn't a smash hit by any imagination, but selling tickets. And then really once the award season came, and to, it's funny because we were also coming in, there were, we came, I think maybe we were the first show to open. There were a lot of like big shows with great reviews coming in that were supposed to be the big hits of the year. There were great shows, but, and they sort of weren't, you know, like it was interested in, if you look at that season, it's so interesting. And a lot of the shows were uh, jukebox shows, you know, were like, like old music. And we were an original show with an original story. You know, but all these shows that were, you know, and there were a lot of shows that got better New York Times reviews than us, but we were the ones that people liked. And suddenly when the awards came out, and I had no idea what to expect. We suddenly started getting nominated for everything. And then you start, so those grosses really go to like hit territory. Yeah. So speaking of jukebox musicals, yes. you've, you've written a couple of them. Yes. You've written a bunch <laughs> of them, actually. Because yeah. Nice work, of course, all yeah. shook up. You just told me about something new. You're yeah. working in London. Yeah. How different is the process of beyond the obvious reason that you're working with a catalog instead of a live live composer right. sitting next to you. What's that process like for you? Well, jukebox musicals are writing backwards, you know? Because unlike, say, when you write Memphis, you start that with, okay, we're starting in this underground club. We need a song about this. Oh, we're going to call it underground. They're going to be singing about the joy of this music and what it's like to be dancing in this sort of forbidden place, at least to white people. So you can really write a lyric that, Spans that moment. When you have a jukebox musical, you have songs, and they're generally pop songs that don't move the story from A to B. So they're generally about a one emotion or one feeling. And oddly, if sometimes the, the songs are two stories, two story heavy, like they actually tell you, you know, like the night the lights went out in Georgia for a random reason, like that's, that tells a story. That's hard to put in a jukebox musical because the story's already in the song. So what are you doing on stage? You're just imitating this, you know. So anyway. So we get these pop songs, and they're all about, generally about love, and you have to figure out, you have to write backwards. You have the song, and you're like, okay, let me write backwards and figure out how can this song, yeah, this is the lyric, so the character who sounds like this has to sound, these words have to sound okay coming out of their mouth, and now how can I write backwards 
and make this song surprising and make us hear it in a way that we know, but also dramatically is different and interesting. So it's just writing backwards. It's a, pu- it's a puzzle. So you've had some pretty big hits, but of mm-hmm. course, when everyone's as prolific as you are, you're going to have some shows that don't do as well as you would like. Yep. Uh, we were talking a little bit before All Shook Up, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, Elvis music based on yep. Shakespearean play. Yep. Feels like it's A plus B equals massive hit, right? And it obviously didn't run a lot yeah. as long as anyone mm-hmm. would have liked on Broadway. What was that experience like for you? All Shook Up was a master class in writing for Broadway and, and 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 also writing in the circus of Broadway, which is as we get more and more internet savvy, I'm sure it just seems I'm sure we'll get we we'll get more so as the years go by. Like it's it's it, it's it was a great experience. I was very proud of the show. All shook up I had gotten a call. I'd written really I love your perfect now change, I think was my big thing at the moment. Memphis I think was out of town and sort of coming in. We were sort of waiting for it to come in. And I had had a nice success off Broadway and regionally had a lot of things playing and was making my living as a writer and was very happy. And then I get this call from my music publisher, who happened to also be the music publisher of the Elvis Presley catalog. And she said, would you be interested in turning the Elvis songs into a Broadway musical? And I said, like, yes, before she said the word musical. I was like, yes, 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 yes. Because I love Elvis. And, uh, you know, and if you listen to those, if you listen to like Jailhouse Rock, that record still sounds like you could have recorded it yesterday and it would be a hit. Like, it's so, you know, it's not, somehow he, the the performances are amazing when you actually sort of analyze them. You say, well, that's why he's Elvis and was Elvis. So anyway, I got this opportunity. And this was right after Mamma Mia was suddenly a big hit. And everyone, every, every song catalog in the world was calling writers and saying, how can we turn our catalog into a Broadway show? And this was just still happening. But really then, like, I mean, I got a call, I remember, from the Village People whoever owned it, literally it was, can you turn the village people into a musical, but we don't want to make it too gay. Like that was like the thing. And I was like, what are you talking about? Have you listened to these songs? Like that's the YMCA about. Like, so I'm like, you know, so you literally were getting that thing. Anyway, but this Elvis thing, I was like, yes, it's Elvis. I love Elvis. I had this idea and they didn't want to do a bio because they felt that this was before Jersey Boys sort of like changed all those rules. Rick Ellis again. Uh, they didn't want to uh, do a bio because they felt that the Elvis spot, you know, Elvis, they wanted an Elvis imitator. They were, they were just want to stay away from that. So I had this idea, which I pitched them about the sort of, uh, 12th night and Midsummer Night's Dreams and taking these Elvis songs and putting them in this Shakespeare comedy mashup of putting it in the U.S. in the middle of the country in the 1950s. And Elvis says this, an Elvis like character comes into this town, this black and white dull town and changes everything. So uh, I wrote it. Stephen Oremus, who's a great ranger before he had done the gazillion things he does. Someone gave me his name, and I called him up, and he said, oh, I love Elvis, come over. And so I met him, and he, he was, must have been 12, and he had a, a picture of uh, Elvis Presley and Anne Margaret in Viva Las Vegas, a poster on his. I was like, I, was like, I walked in the door, I'm like, you're the guy. So, uh, so we had a great time developing this, and we made all these different arrangements. We were so happy. We did this reading for the Elvis people, and they were thrilled, and we did a couple other readings, and then people were throwing money at us for that. Like, we had a duck, because they were just throwing money at us. We had our choice of anything. The Elvis Presley lawyer takes me out one day and, and sits me down. This is, you know, this is years ago. He says, Joe, the Elvis Presley organization wants to make you happy. And I was like, what? I was just like, what are you talking about? So anyway, so we, so the show had a, you know, direct in. We got a couple out of town tryouts. And, you know, it was a very, um, 
The creative team got along great. We sort of had a lot of different producers and with a lot of different opinions. And that was, and I was new at this, and that was harder to navigate. I've gotten much better at that. But that's a big Broadway thing, especially when you have a commercial venture, as we have more and more of jukebox and movie studios, you know, running like that's, you know, it's a different thing than having the Jamie Hammerstein or the Randy Adams and Sue Frost producers who are theater animals and they know, you know, they know. So it was uh, uh, sort of a weird time backstage. But you know what? The audiences were liking it. We had a great out of town in Chicago. We got the Palace Theater, a great theater in New York. We came in and we sort of came in after the vibrations had opened, which had got slammed. And suddenly we lost, it was interesting because we lost, like, I remember we had like three big feature articles that they were going to, that, that some of these big, you know, newspapers, when we had newspapers, were going to do. And they canceled them because of good vibe. We're like, what? We're like, well, no, no, we don't want jukebox musicals. So we came into this toxic environment, sort of got beat up critically. Although we got some nice reviews, if I remember. We got shut out of the Tonys completely. And the show sort of like limped along for five months. And uh, I was so proud of it. You know, people's audiences still seem to like it. But as I said, we were labeled not cool. And that's the worst thing you could be is not cool. And, we've, you know, and it's, since God bless it has had a wonderful regional life. But it was devastating because, you know, this was my Broadway break. And for two years, I had done nothing but this show. I said, aside everything. Because everybody told me it was a short thing. There was, you know, all these, you know, just money, money, money. I wish it was all, I wish all my projects had that much money uh, available. And so, you know, and I thought to myself, I don't know what gave me this wherewithal. I said, there are two things you could do. You could sort of go away and work on one show, maybe go to L.A. and work on do some TV stuff and lick your wounds and, you know, and disappear a little bit, which writers do. I, I, having been through it, I totally understand why they do it. Or you could surprise everyone and double down and write more than you even have and like make up for it and really just show you can do this and really learn from what you've learned here. You know, cause I also, I learned so much. I said, I'd hate to just like have that disappear in my life. I'd like, you know, and I said, I want one more shot. You know, I want one more shot. I want to get back to Broadway. I want to get back to my, on my own terms in a show. I believed in all shook up, but in a person or personal show and an original show and with a, with a producing team that really like was supporting me, you know, like we all believed in the same thing. So that's what I did for two years. No one got no phone calls. <laughs> no one, no, there's no one throwing money at me anymore. No organization wanted to make me happy. I was on my own and I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, and I wrote a bunch of things. And one of the things which I completed then was Memphis, which I think maybe five years later, Back on Broadway, won a bunch of Tony Awards, and I had like my show that I was like, this is the, Memphis was my reaction emotionally to all shook up. It was like, I want to do this personal statement to prove it, you know, to myself kind of thing. And then I wrote up some other things too that, that, that got, you know, produced New York and, and other places. So that was a really, it was a, it was, it was a great lesson in terms of looking at a writer's career, which is so weird to begin with, that as, as continuum, it's not just, you know, I don't believe in like flops, hits as, as, as helpful to describe your own work. I believe I learn from every show I do. I hopefully get something out of it. And then I hopefully take what I've learned to the next project. Doesn't mean the project, next project is going to be as successful or not. And the goal shouldn't be reaching for this big, you know, to run a musical on Broadway. You need what? Have to make a half a million dollars a week to keep your doors open or more. So they shouldn't all be that. So, but I learned that, I learned that from all Chicago. 
You are very prolific. Do you have a specific process to your writing? Do you get up at like, okay, 7 o'clock to noon, I'm going to write, <laughs> 1 o'clock, does he write whenever? Yeah, I wish I was you? one of those more, I hate when you read the people who get up at 7 and they're fresh and they write till 12 and then they have a light lunch and then they walk the dog and then they write now. That's not me. I write a lot and I write, I'm not a morning person at all. I think that's, as I said, I went into theater so I could stay up late. And I oftentimes write at night because, you know, what happens at night now, the phone doesn't ring, no email, you sort of like, so sometimes uh, I'll write at night, but I, I pretty much write at least six days a week, I would say for three or four hours, generally late morning into the afternoon. And if I'm really hot on a project, I can write into the evening easily on it. You seem to be very attuned into the business side of Broadway as well. You were talking about the grosses yeah. and talking about the advertising, the press, is it important for a writer to understand the business of Broadway and the business of theater? Do you think it uh, helps you? Doesn't it, I don't think it helps your actual work. Like, it doesn't help to sit down with a blank page and say, this next sentence is going to be part of a hit show. Like, that doesn't help. It actually freezes you. Like, you, when you write, you have to just think, I'm writing when I'm writing. And some people are going to like it. Some people won't. I'm writing with this because I feel it's an important thing for me to express and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying this process. I, I, I literally learned more about the business because all shook up. I felt like, ooh, there were business decisions made that if I was smarter about the business, I would have been able to throw a red flag at. So generally much more involved now in, I want to know what the advertising is going to be. I want to know what the plan is. I want to know what the, I ask now what the weekly is, you know, you know how important number <laughs> weekly is, especially if you go off Broadway, off Broadway too. So I'm like, I don't want, because it's going to be, you know, my, my name as the writer of the show is going to be, Attached to the show, if it makes money or not, or if it runs or not. So I want to, I want, I want to be responsible. I want to at least have some, re- and I don't have full responsibility for it. I'm, I never, I don't go to all ad meetings. I don't do all that. But I think it's just helpful to learn for myself. What do you look for from a producer? Producer calls you up, or mm-hmm. someone out there listening wants mm-hmm. to produce one of your shows. What makes you? What do they need to say or show you in order to say yes? I'm going to entrust a Joda PH or original with you. Well, they need a plan. They need to, you know, have a passion for the project. You know, um, I want to hear what they really think. I don't want to even hear their comments on it. But I think that I I want to know what their plan is. You know, like, uh, I want to know, oh, do you think this is a downtown show? Do you think it's a downtown show? Should it come to Broadway? If it comes to Broadway, does it need to start? I want to know those things. And I want to, you know, and I also want to know, well, how are you going to finance this? Because even off Broadway is, you know, a million dollars. And <laughs> like, 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 how are you going to finance this? I think that's an important question. And, you know, I've worked with, you know, younger new producers and so they don't, you know, and they're learning. And I want, you know, I also really want them to know, which is great. Sometimes, you know, you get the great young Ken Davenport who has to start somewhere. But I want to know that they know there are things they don't know about the business and that they're willing to find out. That's really actually would be a much better answer than my battling. I want to know that they know that they're not reinventing the wheel here. So you said it's been 20 years since I Love Your Perfect Now yeah. Change. How has writing for the theater changed in those 20 years? Um, well, has it? Maybe it hasn't. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's still, you know, as a playwright, you're still, every time you're you're starting from scratch with a blank page, you know, you're, you own the copyright, which is the way it's very different than, you know, writer for hire work in Hollywood. So you're not getting, you know... You're not sitting in a writer's room with five other writers, you know, throwing out plot ideas and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I still think it's you, you know, it's every, you know, woman or man against the blank page is, is sort of the thing. And I, I, 
if I have a good idea, I'm jazzed by it. If I have an idea that's not working, it's uh, agonizing and terrifying. So um, I don't know. I mean, certainly, the, the, I think the marketplace has changed, but any marketplace would have changed over 20 years. But I think as far as what you want to write about, it's, you know, I, I, I still think you can write about anything for theater, which is one reason I love about it. And you have control over it, which is one as a writer, I love sink or swim on that, you know, of course. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's probably if there's technical differences, you know, the, the intermissionless hour and a half, 80 minute, hour and 40 minute play is much more prominent than, than it was 20 years ago. So that's possible. Traditional well-structured play doesn't seem to be as popular with new writers and a lot of critics now. So I think you can be a little more experimental in a way. But, you know, the, the, those are all like technical things. Advice to new writers, young writers out there? Yeah, like there's no, as, as probably my life proves, and Rick Ellis too, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no like straight path for writing. If you want to write for theater, and of course now, like the like when we, way it has changed is because of this, how many scripted television series there are now. There, there's a market for writers, and you know when I started, there was you know I don't know thirty shows on the air, so it was easy for me not because I was making a living in New York, it was not to go to Hollywood and, and do that stuff. So if you want to write for theater, but you have to have a passion for it, and I I also say like I'm a lifelong student of theater. Like I see a lot of things, I read it. The plays I don't get to see, I read. And I, you know, and I, I'm sort of self-taught, but I, I learn the, who's t- teaches me or other writers uh, go, just go into a play. That's a big hit. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm like saying, I don't have an opinion. I don't really like this. And this is the reason. And then go into a play that's sort of like limping along. And I'm like, I think this is really good. And this is why. Like having those sort of opinions, I always tell younger writers, especially like go to theater, have opinions. And do that also with your own work. Don't write what you think people want to write. You got to write what you want to write. But it's also, you know, I sit up many a night just writing when no one cared for many years because I loved it. And if you're not, you know, people who are writers sit down and write. Okay, my last question, my infamous genie question. Genie. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, Joe, you've contributed such wonderful pieces to the theater over the years. You made a lot of people laugh, a lot of people smile, a lot of people cry. I want to thank you for your contributions to the American Musical Theater by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so (laughs) crazy about Broadway that makes you mad? And Look, if you could see the big smile on his face right now, Joe is like one of the nicest guys (laughs) the industry has. If only they were all like Joe, it'd be a much happier business. What makes you mad and gets you angry and has you pounding your fist on the table that you'd ask this genie to change? Well, uh, the genie in Latin is James Monroe Aguilar, who was in Memphis. Who we who met the key. That's right. So, <laughs> so he thanks you for that. So I love James, and I would uh, yes, I see him all the time. So thank you, James. Well, I mean, there's probably and because of James, let me, let me say uh, can I ask two part answer because one's off Broadway. Let me start with off Broadway. The, the, the one. The one thing that I, I, Mr. Genie, make commercial off-Broadway as vital a choice as it was 25 years ago, which is where I started, where I love you, Broke Now Change, Over and Through the Woods, ran for two years, and I'm just playing all over the world still. Like, you know, you used to be able to do a, a show off-Broadway for $400,000, $500,000. It could run for a year, make money, and that doesn't exist anymore. Like, like, you know, you know, it's hard to get people to invest in off Broadway because the margins are so tight. You know, every once in a while a show will, you know, play 
But, you know, Byron Seller, which is a great show, I think, you know, was a sort of made money off Broadway, but it's one person. You know, it's one person with barely any set, so it's, it couldn't be cheaper to run. Used to, you know, shows that had 10 people in them, and they would, you know, start at second stage or Manhattan Theater Club, and then move and run for a year off Broadway. And these were great plays, and they didn't have to open on Broadway and make half a million dollars a week with a big star to run, you know? So if I had the, a big genie wish, I would say that I wish that off-Broadway, commercial off-Broadway was as vital a place for writers and directors and actors to start, that it wasn't just the not-for-profits running it. That'd be my one wish. And because you mentioned uh, James and all, my other wish would be, and I think we're sort of getting there, is that more and more non-traditional casting gives more and more opportunities to really talented people. It is definitely a different thing if you're a talented, pretty young white actress. Is a very You have a very different plethora of opportunities than a very talented uh, African-American actress on stage. You know, there's, there's just, you know, those career paths are just, they're, they're, you still have them, and, you know. But I wish that there was uh, more equality. And clearly we're getting there and having that conversation. Just like James Eichelhardt, he was super, like, you know, we saw him in Memphis. And James came on to Memphis in late. He was in, like, the third or fourth stop. And I was like... Who is this guy? And if he was on from the beginning, I probably would have written that role would have probably been twice as big because I'm like, he's like a, a phenomenon. I mean, that is super talented. And then, of course, you know, he gets uh, Aladdin, and but he's been in Aladdin for two or three years. And he uh, he said to me recently, you know, I said, and I said, you must be really enjoying it. He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, yeah, I really am. He said, you know, people keep asking me, well, what's the next big thing? Why aren't you leaving for the next big thing? And he was like, well, what's the next big thing? You know, and this is a what, Tony Award winning, super talented guy. So I think that those opportunities, I hope, continue to grow. A fantastic answer. And we all look forward to your next big thing as Thank well. You, Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to ProducersPerspective.com. See you next time. Don't forget to check out the Broadway Meetup. There's a great opportunity up there right now to see Jersey Boys for only 59 bucks before it closes. Check out the Broadway Meetup today. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.